1: From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome everybody to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and the third of our Maritime Scotland specials. Today I'm exploring the remarkable career of Jonas Wiley, a Fife man who made a fortune running guns from Glasgow to the Confederate South during the American Civil War, a little bit of Scotland's hidden history of supporting slavery. And I'm talking today with John Messner, a curator for transport and technology at Glasgow Museums. He was part of the project team for the Riverside Museum Scotland's Museum of Transport and Travel, winner of the European Museum of the Year 2013. In 2015, he co-curated a display about Glasgow's role in the American Civil War, which led to his work on the life of Jonas Wiley. Originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan, he is a graduate of Butler University Indianapolis and received his MA in museum studies from Leicester University in England. He now lives with his family in Ayrshire in Scotland. He's the author of A Scottish Blockade Runner During the American Civil War, published by Whittles Publishing, and he's here today to explain those remarkable links between the southern states of America, fighting in the civil war to continue with the slave-driven economy... And mariners of Scotland, John. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me on. Um, tell me about this this wonderful project. I'm always interested in uh, in the kind of the moment of genesis when you suddenly go, Do you know what? I'm going to write a book about this. What happened
0: with you? Yeah, this is a, one of those projects that had just one of those kind of moments. Um, I was working on a display about Glasgow's role in the American Civil War. Uh, specifically the blockade runners that were built in Glasgow. And uh, I must admit, throw my hands up right now, I'm not a maritime historian. I was working with our maritime historian on the display. She knows everything about Glasgow shipbuilding, but I knew about the American Civil War. So we're working on the display, and we have a lovely painting, an oil painting, by the the famous English artist Samuel Walters of the Advance, which is one of the most famous uh, of the blockade runners. It was launched in 1862 as the Lord Clyde. And uh, we were looking into the painting, and we wanted to know a little bit more about its history, not just the ship's history. Uh, And it turns out it was owned by, and there's a little plaque on it, and always read the plaques, I would say, uh, Jonas Wiley, who was its commander. And once I started looking into some of the histories of the the ship and the war, um, he didn't really get much of a mention. And I I thought to myself, uh, how could he have owned such a, a fantastic painting if he wasn't the commander of the vessel? And from that little instant kind of spark, uh, which was seven years ago now, came this, (laughs) (laughs) well, there was a break for COVID, it must be said. Um, But came this, uh, you know, exploration and deep delve into quite an amazing story about Jonas Wiley, who commanded the advance, of course, during the war, but also had a really fascinating maritime career before the war and later came back and came back to Scotland himself. Uh, At the time, we didn't even know he was Scottish but came back to Scotland and would go on to speak about his time in the war um, quite frequently around his home in Fife. Great stuff. Okay, let's
1: let's rewind the clock a bit um, and just give everyone a sense of what's going on here. So first up,
0: the American Civil War. Uh, When did it happen? What was going on? Sure. The American Civil War starts in April of 1861. It was after the election of Abraham Lincoln the previous year, and several southern states decided to secede from the Union. So what happened was one of the first things that Lincoln did as president was to set up a blockade of the southern states. The southern states were agrarian, um, didn't have much of an industry at all, uh, but what they did have was a big cash crop, which was their cotton. Uh, It was key to manufacturing in the north, but also key to manufacturing here in Britain. So the war started in 1861. The idea was that to set up a blockade, a naval blockade, was to squeeze the southern states into submission to not allow them to get vital supplies in to send their cash crops out Uh, the war continued for four years Uh, at the start the blockade was very much almost a paper blockade the north didn't have many warships that it could bring back and and man these ports in the south and the southern states didn't have many vessels to actually move their cargo in and out but as the war progressed into 1862-1863 uh, more and more vessels, either through purchase from the states themselves or through private companies and individuals, were running this blockade, taking in the needed uh, military material, you know, weapons, clothing, boots, and so on, but also food, uh, fancy goods, you know, all the kind of fancy things from Europe. Um, and the North, the Union, were slowly building up uh, more of a fleet outside of these these ports to try to stop them. And where Glasgow comes in, where where Liverpool and the British connection is, is that the best ships to run this blockade turned out to be paddle steamers. So Clyde built, Mersey built paddle steamers that were fast, had a shallow draft, could navigate quite challenging, narrow rivers or or, or curvy rivers, um, but could also carry a good amount of cargo. Um, Now, these vessels... um, weren't built for transatlantic uh, voyages. You know, they were built to go up and down to Dublin or, or to Gurek or something like that. Um, so there was a challenge in the first place to get them across the Atlantic. And once they were there, they were based at the neutral ports of Nassau in the Bahamas, uh, St. George's in Bermuda, Havana in, in Cuba. And from there, they can make the shorter distance runs into the ports in the south that could then feed and supply the Confederate uh, regiments, its peoples, uh, and its cities. So, I mean, the paddle aspect of it is interesting. Is it just because
1: screw propellers, there weren't enough of them, or the technology wasn't sufficiently advanced at the time for
0: them to work? Well, I think when it came to what was needed, is the fact that the the ports that these blockade runners were going into, primarily Charleston, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina, although there were some others along the coasts, uh, weren't big ports of the time, didn't have uh, your, your kind of larger harbor facilities. They needed vessels that were, like I said, a shallow draft and can make good speed. Um, yeah. They didn't have the ability to you know, build up these ports during the war. They needed the, the resources quite quickly. So New Orleans would have been the perfect place for, for uh, supplying the Confederacy, but it was captured quite early in the war because the Union knew that was the main port of the South. There
1: can't have been very many of these paddle, paddle steamers, like exactly the right type of ship around.
0: Uh, no. Uh, when it started, and you're looking kind of mid to late 1862, when suddenly the Union Navy uh, was getting a bit bigger, the fleets were getting a bit bigger, and you couldn't just go into some of these ports with kind of a merchantman, even a screw propeller ship, like you said. So suddenly these uh, paddle steamers that were you know, on the, on, the, on the Clyde trade, the Mersey trade, became highly valuable. And you started seeing loads of these being bought up. So one day you might have a, a, a steamer that was usually on, the, um, on the, the, the Dublin trade or the Belfast trade. And suddenly it's off to, and they used lots of euphemisms at the time to try to cover up where they were going to. So it could have been the Celestial Emperor or the Emperor of China. And everyone at the time, this was well covered in newspapers all throughout Britain. Everyone knew at the time that they were actually going uh, to supply the Confederacy with with the materials they needed to to fight the war. Um, and all throughout the, the end of eighteen sixty two, and this is where Jonas Wiley's story starts to come into play. Uh, the Glasgow Herald and the newspapers in the area were every day there'd be some kind of story about either a new a paddle steamer being sold, a new one being launched for the trade, or the stories and reports of them over in the Americas and what's happening to them.
1: Here's a problem for you, though.
0: To get a paddle ship
1: across the Atlantic, so paddles uh, they're only if sufficiently effective and efficient if their depth is exactly right. But if you load that ship up with coal, then the paddles are too deep, which makes it inefficient and a bad sea going vessel. So how how do they deal yeah. with that?
0: Um, w- one of the the most dangerous aspects of of this in terms of the crew and the vessels. And uh, we can get into the kind of aspect of being chased and caught in a moment. But one of the most dangerous was getting them across the Atlantic. Like you said, yeah. you needed a big load of coal to make it all the way there. Even with your sails and with a with a good wind, you still needed full um, holds of coal. And several of the vessels never made it across the way. Um, if you encountered heavy seas and chop and so on, these ships were not built for that. You know, These steamers were not built for that. So getting it across the Atlantic was the first major um, obstacle for any of these. And a lot of them, uh, I know when Jonas Wally captained the Lord Clyde, it was called at the time, they stopped at Cardiff first to resupply with the best coal. They'd stop at Madeira and some of the other Portuguese islands to resupply with as much coal as possible. And hopefully uh, they can make it over without causing much damage to the ship. And several of them did make it over, but they bashed and battered by the waves that they, they needed repairs or and never even could try to run the blockade.
1: That's fascinating, isn't it? Well, that must mean that yeah. there were huge... Um coal cargo ships running from places like Wales out to Madeira and, you know, the Portuguese islands could have coal, coaling stations all around the world. There was. Opens up an entirely separate
0: history. Not, not just that, um, Nassau and Bermuda, you know, the Bahamas and Bermuda, there, there's no natural coal deposits there. So before the war, they were pretty much a backwater port, you know, not much transatlantic trade really made it to them. But suddenly... Almost overnight, they became this huge hub of mercantile activity. And one of those things that needed to be provided was huge stacks of coal. So by the quaysides in in these ports, there would be these huge stacks of coal. And there are reports of of some of those catching fire or some of the big stacks of uh, cotton bales next to them catching fire. So it was kind of a Wild West kind of situation in, in these ports, as well as some of the ports that they were serving in the Confederacy, which before the war were once again not major ports for um, even even you know internal US trade, much less transatlantic trade.
1: Yeah. So, OK, here we are. We're all set up. We understand why the, the Scottish are interested, why there is a link between the South. Along comes Jonas Wiley, and he decides to have a pop. I'm assuming he did so because he could make an enormous amount of money. Is yes. That right?
0: Yes. Um, he wasn't alone. There were thousands of, of, of British and European sailors who saw the opportunity to make it make a quick buck make a quick pound if you will um running guns running supplies for military turns out to be quite lucrative if you can make it work for you so um making one, su- one successful trip that is back to let's say wilmington north carolina and back out to a neutral port waking one successful voyage could earn a captain up to five thousand dollars now that's a lot of money um and that was on a privateer. So some of these vessels, like the Advance, was were owned by states. But still, one successful trip, which might only be a week, maybe two weeks, depending on when the moon is, you want to be nice and um, hidden on the open sea, uh, could make you more than a year's wages um, mm-hmm. for, for 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 everyone, from from a from a boiler to seaman to the captain and so on. So there was a huge amount of money on offer, and this lured. Um, Humble seamen, able seamen, all the way up to Royal Naval officers on furlough to either make a fortune or make him have a bit of a adventure. And Jonas Wiley was one of these men. In um, the summer of 1862, he uh, was awarded his master's certificate. He he sat his examination and that was after 10 years of being at sea. He started as an apprentice, uh, the lowest rung as you can start at. Uh, Worked his way up from sailing ships, clipper ships, all the way up to steamers and 1862 he was based in liverpool and that was one of the hubs for these kind of connections with the confederacy at the time um, in september of that year he was made master his first ever um, command of a ship called the benita uh, a screw propeller um with the intention of running blockade the benita uh built in 1860 by denny's of uh, here in glasgow or uh, i should say Dumbarton, um made it over to nassau But by that time, by the autumn of 1862, a big uh, screw-propelled vessel couldn't chance its luck. They had intended to go into Wilmington. It had made one run earlier in the year without Wiley on board. Um, So, unsuccessful, he came back to Liverpool as master. But, as fate would have it, that vessel, the Benita, was carrying three agents for the state of North Carolina. The recently elected governor, Zebulon Vance, had thought he needed to get into the blockade-running trade to supply his state, to supply his uh, regiments. So he sent these three agents to Britain to uh, sell cotton, to purchase supplies, and to purchase a vessel. And they sailed on the Benita with Wiley back to Britain. Um, there's no re- recollections or, or any kind of diaries of that voyage, but what I have been able to find out is Wiley's next command, his next vessel, turns out to be the Lord Clyde, uh, which would become the advance when it became a blockade runner. And interestingly enough, one of those gentlemen, um, John White, um, although he had lived in North Carolina, his adult life was actually from Krakati in Fife, and that's where Wiley was from as well. So you can only imagine maybe in the evenings when they're having dinner with the captain talking about the ongoing conflict, needing the proper ships, the proper captains, but also maybe maybe making some kind of family, old country connection that then led Wiley to become a trusted um, uh, acquaintance of these men and then led him to being captain of the ship as it left Greenock, bound for the blockade. Yeah.
1: And then, I mean, how, how did his blockade-running career
0: go? What, what adventures yeah. did he get up to? Well, in May of 1863, uh, the Lord Clyde leaves uh, Glasgow, and this is one of the things I was able to discover through the research. Um, the Lord Clyde, the Advance, which we'll call it from now, um, had three captains over its career as a blockade runner. Two of which were American Confederate officers, uh, US, former U.S. Navy officers, and it was always assumed that one of those was in command when it left Greenock in, in May of 1863. But all the contemporary reports, um, all the um, the crew lists, the newspaper reco- um, reports have Jonas Wiley being in command. Um, that could be part of the subterfuge of the whole kind of, well, it, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to run the blockade. It's just a merchant vessel going out to Nassau kind of thing. So you can kind of cover your tracks. If you're, if you're approached by a Union vessel, if you're boarded by a Union vessel, you can just throw up your hands and say, uh, no, mate, we're you know British flag, British crew, and so on. But he leaves in 18, uh, May of 1863. And uh, over the next uh, 15, 16 months, He's on board the vessel the whole time, and the advance uh, is one of the most famous and one of the most successful of these blockade runners. Uh, he makes 15 successful runs through the blockade. Mm, that's a lot. That's a lot. N- not not the, not the most, but it is kind of top 10 of these vessels. Um, now sometimes they might make one. They might make uh, after two or three runs, you know, the, the, all all your kind of outlay is paid off. The owners are paid off. They don't need to make any more really. But as a state-run ship. It continued. Um, During that time, he was chased by Union vessels. Um, The the, the, the natural environment chased him, you know, storms on the open sea. They grounded several times uh, in in the mouths of of the Cape Fear River out of Wilmington. There's two inlets that you can go into, both very shallow. Even with experienced pilots on board, um, the the vessel uh, grounded several times going in and out. Um, Ultimately, um, uh, the luck ran out and on September 10th of 1864 so over a year's time um, the advance left the Cape Fear uh, bound for Halifax this time but because of some poor coal once again we'll mention the coal uh, the good coal had been taken over for Confederate warships and the coal they were burning was was quite dirty stuff you know sending up big plumes of black smoke and a U.S. vessel the USS Santiago de Cuba uh, saw her uh, ran her down over a long chase and captured the vessel So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, now at this point, I should just mention something about being captured. Um, running the blockade is, is illegal, but as long as you don't fire back, because as you don't fight back, um, if you just run and capture... Then, as a, a non-enemy combatant, as a non-American, British sailors or European sailors um, didn't have much to fear. Um, they could have been held for a little bit, but usually the protocol, the law at the time, was that they would be released. Now they would only have their personal uh, items on them, so all their cargo and their ship—you know—that that run that would have been lost. You know, no money from that from that go, but. Uh, Hopefully, as long as, like I said, he didn't fight back, as long as he didn't struggle, um, it was it was an easy job, really. Um, and on on the other side, just to, to finish up, the, the people that caught the ship, the union the union um, sailors and officers, they were entitled to a piece of the prize money if that ship was or if steamer was was um, deemed a lawful prize in one of the prize courts in New York or Boston. So there was big money to be made from both sides of running the blockade. Hmm. So Jonas Wiley's a, a Scotsman from Fife. Mm-hmm. Is, the, is the crew full of Scots as well? Uh, there's three known crew listings. The first one is when it left Glasgow, and it's a fully British crew. Irish, uh, English, uh, Scottish. Uh, there's two other uh, crew lists. The, the most complete was from eight, February of 1864. It's just before Wiley took over official command of the vessel. I I told you there was two other Confederate commanders. And there were 56 crew members at the time, 21 American, and 35 foreign. And of those, 14 Irish, 9 English, and 4 Scottish. So 48% of that crew at that time were British, with a couple French and uh, other ones thrown in. So it's, it's interesting, one, that not only did the South not have a lot of ships... They didn't have a lot of mariners to man those ships. So it was a supply and demand issue as well. And Eric Graham, in his fantastic book, Clyde Built, uh, which looks at kind of the the Glasgow and the Scottish connection to the whole trade, he reckons up to 3,000 Scots alone were involved in running the blockade. And there's also the kind of connection of, of sending all the material to Nassau and Bermuda that would then be unloaded there, Shipped into the South and the cotton bales then taken over to Liverpool from those ports. So, from those four years of of the the American Civil War, there there was a huge amount of, of British sailors, European sailors involved in this trade.
1: And do we know what 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 was being brought across on Wiley's ships? What what was his cargo and where was he getting it from? We was do guns
0: um, coming out. Everything coming out of the South is almost always cotton, sometimes turpentine. So that's quite easy yeah. to to say. And they usually uh, lim- um, list those newspaper reports. Going into the South is a bit more hard because a lot of the cargo manifests, even the official ones from the customs in, in Bermuda and St. George's, of course, um, sometimes just say merchandise or packets. But we do know some of the biggest things were firearms, uh, blankets, clothing, cloth, shoes, um, even food, you know, tinned meats uh, and things like that, but also... A lot of these other vessels, not necessarily Wiley's, were bringing in, like I said, fancy good, liquors, fashion, clothing, people. If you think the, the Confederacy was a, a nascent state and it needed all the trappings or wanted all the trappings of, of, an, of a nation, it needed things like, for example, uh, money or stamps, and it needed engravers and printers, and most of those were to be found in northern cities. So there's... There's stories of Scottish and British engravers and printers going over, and they would be going through the blockade on one of these blockade-running ships. That's fascinating. I I
1: particularly, I can see how a lot of the cloth and the food, you know, that would would that come from the Midlands and then up to Glasgow and then out on the ships, or uh, how were they doing? And and, and, sorry, two questions. (laughs) And the other one is,
0: is where were the guns being made? Right, Um, it's interesting. One, Um, so these things are coming from all over Britain. So you see, you know, uh, cotton clothing, shoes, and so on. Um, it, it's an interesting connection because, you know, the, the Britain outlay, outlawed slavery in the 1830s. But still, its connection with the slave-grown cotton in the United States continued in the 1860s. And this new input of, of capital, of, of money to buy ships to buy munitions, kind of continued that relationship. Um, But you said also, where where are the weapons coming from? Well, for example, infield rifles were supplied, but they were supplied to both sides. So there wasn't a blockade of New York, Boston, or Baltimore. So the ships could go over there. um, No problem. From Liverpool, like you said, or London, or Bristol, or or wherever. Um, But the other ones would have to be transported to the neutral ports and then run in on on the blockade. Um, So uh, Britain was making money out of it. Um, there, there was, there was, you know, in in Glasgow, in Liverpool, there were there were big meetings held in support of the Confederacy, but also anti Confederacy and and, and anti slavery at the time. Um, the the Confederacy would have direly loved Britain to come in to support them during the war. And early on, one of their um, the kind of policies was to stop the supply of cotton to to basically make. You might have heard of the Lancashire Cotton Famine. That's when the supply of southern grown cotton basically dried up and a lot of the mills had to stop producing. And the Confederacy had hoped that Britain might come in, maybe just use the Royal Navy to help them supply the south, but possibly even to declare war on the rest of the United States and open up a northern front on the Canadian border. And, you know, there were people in the British government and in the French government as well, kind of arguing both sides of that. Uh, It never came out, uh, never came across, of course. Um, But lots of people in the north still felt that, you know, Britain was not being neutral. They were supplying these things to the south and they were letting their ports be used to supply these things. Yeah. I mean, you start the book
1: by talking about uh, uh, Jonas Wiley giving a talk and how he's he's a very popular man and he's got all of these stories. Um, But, you know, the. the the bottom line here is that he was helping the southern states who were campaigning for the continuation of slavery to, to, to win. Yes. Um, and how, how do you think Scotland should feel about this link? I mean, it's a very clear link between Scotland and uh, the people trying to continue slavery yeah. in the 1860s.
0: Yeah. Yes. There's there's no doubt that you know, running the blockade and, and supplying or supporting the Confederacy of the southern states uh, have a connection. To, to continuation of, of slavery there. And it's an interesting one. I've, I tried to look into, to find any kind of reference to Wiley or, or to some of the other blockade-running captains, and very few of them told their stories, either contemporarily or even later in their own lives. There's, you know, a handful of, of kind of recorded diaries. And the political aspect doesn't come to the fore, it usually is the monetary aspect, and you do have to then kind of question um, their motives towards it. Um, in the in in the nineteenth century, the blockade runner was seen as kind of one of these kind of uh, high adventures kind of character. Um, yeah, he's a
1: bit he's a bit like a.
0: Um, uh uh, a highwayman yeah. in the in the, kind of the a 17th, 17th bit, century yes. England. And just, um, and he came back and he, he gave these lectures uh, only, only near his his hometown, uh, at Krakadee in Fife. Um, but they were always well-received. Uh, it, it sounds like they always have the same title and probably the same content. Um, but the, the people always came out and, and gave him a warm welcome because I think there was that kind of aspect of, A 19th century adventurer, highwayman, you know, evading the Union fleet. There probably would have been no chat about the actual enslaved peoples who were, you know, toiling to grow this cotton and and were not not only freed by the end of the war. Um, But it's an interesting one because one of the best sources of information I found on Jonas Wiley wasn't uh, a crew list or a maritime record. It was an article from the 1889 July edition of The People's Friend. Now, I'm not sure many of your listeners know what The People's Friend is. It's still going around today. It's it's published by D.C. Thompson. It was and is primarily a women's magazine. And was and is full of things like recipes, how to do things around your home, but also stories of adventure, of love, and romance. And I discovered that Jonas Wiley had an article written by one of his friends uh, in The People's Friend in 1889 and that's where a lot of the interesting kind of adventurous stories uh, during the war and before the war, uh, I was able to discover. And that came out at a time when there were also serialized stories, fictionalized serial stories about blockade runners. So this is 25 years after the end of the war. But by that time, this idea of a of a Scottish, British blockade runner going off um, running the blockade, but also with some romance thrown in, is still in the forefront of people's minds, or readers' minds, of, of newspapers and magazines. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? But
1: um, yeah. a fascinating chapter in this uh, hidden history of Scotland supporting the Confederacy. John, thank you so much for speaking to me today.
0: Thank you, Sam. Very much appreciate it.
1: A fascinating interview there. Now do please catch up on our other Scottish maritime histories. We began this mini-series with an episode on the wrecks of World War II midget submarines at Aberlady Bay in East Lothian. The second episode was with the brilliant Ron Nish, a loftsman by trade who learned his skills at the Henry Robb shipyard in Leith and has gone on to write a series of wonderful books on shipbuilding in Leith. Time, however, for a quick catch-up on articles posted on our free forum, which you can find at snr.org.uk. I would urge you all to get involved. It's becoming a fascinating and very large, permanent and searchable online miscellany of maritime queries and answers. A week or so ago, just after we published an episode on the USS Constitution, I wrote... In the latest episode of the Mariner's Mirror podcast, Iconic Ships 6, USS Constitution, it's made clear that the Constitution is the oldest commissioned warship afloat, and that the ship is in fact the oldest vessel of any type still afloat. She was launched in 1797, that makes her 224 years old. Can anyone help me create a chronological list of the oldest ships afloat? Uh, we've had a reply um, from Malcolm Lewis, a regular correspondent. Hello, Malcolm. Thank you very much, as always. And he has got his teeth stuck into this, uh, into this question. I thought I'd read all of these suggestions out. Um, do please get in touch if you are involved in any of these ships somehow and would like to feature on the podcast. So Malcolm writes, we have... HMS Trincomalee, a frigate launched in 1817. She's in Wet Dock in Hartlepool. HMS Unicorn, another frigate, 1824, in Wet Dock in Dundee. HMS Warrior. Steam powered sailing frigate, 1860, afloat in Portsmouth. The SV James Craig, a bark from 1874 at the Sydney Maritime Museum, afloat in Sydney Harbour. The SV Falls of Clyde, 1878, a sail driven tanker, afloat in Honolulu, Hawaii. I had never heard of that one, that's a cracker. HMS Gannett Screw Frigate, um, 1878, in the wet dock in Chatham. Uh, The USS Olympia, a protected cruiser, 1892, afloat in Philadelphia. The SV Glenley Bark, 1896, that's at the Port of Glasgow Museum. The RS Discovery, that's Captain Scott's ship, uh, a wonderful ship there, afloat at Dundee from 1901. 1912, we have the USS Texas battleship in Texas, Um, the HMS Caroline. Uh, in 1914, a cruiser from, uh, and that's uh, in Belfast. 1918, HMS President. Uh, that's a flower class Q ship, and that's at Chatham. A few more suggestions here as well. 1934, HQS Wellington. Um, uh, I've been on there many times it's the headquarters of the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and that's more just off the embankment in London 1934, the Queen Mary, a liner and troop ship in World War II, that's in California 1938, HMS Belfast, she of course is featured in one of our iconic ships uh, the USS Intrepid 1942, uh, it's a carrier afloat in New York 1942, another carrier in San Francisco that's the USS Hornet A destroyer, uh, 1943, the HMS Cavalier, that's at Chatham. 1943, again, the Jeremiah O'Brien Liberty ship in San Francisco. I've been to see that, it's fantastic. ML-1387 Medusa, a motor launch. Um, About to go and film on her in the next couple of weeks, uh, and that's at Gosport. So uh, do check out the Facebook page and the YouTube page to see some footage of the wonderful Medusa in action. Royal Yacht Britannia, 1953, afloat in Leith, Edinburgh. HMAS Vampire Destroyer, 1958, afloat in Sydney Harbour. And the HMAS Onslow Submarine, 1968, afloat in Sydney Harbour. Some fantastic vessels there. Thank you so much, Malcolm. We also had a reply, a very thoughtful point, made by the excellent Frank Scott. He's another of our most regular correspondents. So hello, Frank. Frank writes, In this context, the term afloat can cover a multitude of sins. Perhaps more useful terms would be fully seagoing, limited seagoing, harbour service only, afloat alongside and afloat in dock. For vessels that are fully seagoing, custom-built steel sail training ships have a phenomenal safety record and many are still running after over a century of service. My own alma mater, Soorlandet, comes up for its centenary in 2027 and 53 years after I was a cadet in 1968 can be said to be wearing its years rather better than I am. Well done, Frank. Uh, He also writes, one of the oldest vessels to have limited seagoing status is the whaler Charles Morgan, built in 1841. Restored to seagoing status by Mystic Seaport Museum between 2008 and 2013, after having been a static exhibit for some 90 years. This restoration was an astonishing achievement, albeit a very expensive one. Although Charles W. Morgan was licensed to conduct a three-month voyage along the US East Coast in 2014. It was a one-off and the vessel has reverted to a static exhibit since then, which of course is a shame, but wonderful that that voyage in 2014 happened. So uh, thank you very much, Malcolm and Frank, for your replies to that. Do please get in touch if you have any other ideas. Um, I think I will post something soon also on the largest ships because we're just been filming a model of the Great Eastern and will be filming soon a model of the Royal George, both of which uh, claim to be the largest ships of their time. And I've been having a hunt around the internet and I can't find a list of the largest ships, either, ma- either a merchant or naval or a mixture of both. I think that would be a great thing for everyone to get involved in. So that's it for this week. Do please follow us wherever you engage on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, wherever it might be. Uh, Do please particularly check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page, where we've got some truly fantastic and innovative ways of uh, presenting the maritime past. Best of all, though, guys, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. It doesn't cost much, but it supports this podcast. You get four journals a year. You can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. Yes, that's true. And, of course, the money supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the Society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserving our maritime past.